0: This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey. Exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks. Forgotten gems and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks again for joining us. For this final episode in our second season, we're going to do something new. Return to a building we've already featured on In Search of Portland. That's because this is a building I especially love, and one with more stories to tell. I'm talking about Veterans Memorial Coliseum, as it's officially been known since a 2011 renaming. But, of course, most of us still go by the simpler original name, Memorial Coliseum. As we talked about in the first podcast episode about this arena, the Coliseum has probably hosted more famous 20th century performers and athletes than any other Portland building. It's also a -a one-of-a-kind work of modernist architecture, its glass walls offering a 360-degree view to the city outside. Yet like so many urban renewal projects of that era, in Portland and in virtually every major American city, The Coliseum's construction in northeast Portland displaced a principally Black neighborhood, just as the arena's original destination, downtown in what became known as the South Auditorium District, displaced a principally Jewish and immigrant neighborhood. In our first episode about this building, I talked with Stuart Emmons, an architect and my friends at Memorial Coliseum co-founder, about the building's incredible design. And I talked with Albina Vision co-founder Rukaya Adams, about how we can restore the once vibrant and diverse Albina neighborhood equitably. For this second episode, I wanted to share with you another pair of interviews, this time with perhaps the two people I personally most associate with the Coliseum. My first guest was enshrined in the James Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1993. As a player, he led our beloved Portland Trailblazers to the 1977 NBA championship, In college, he had led UCLA to an incredible 88-game winning streak and won NCAA Player of the Year three straight seasons en route to two national championships. More recently, he's enjoyed a second career over the past two decades as one of television's most iconoclastic sports commentators, calling college basketball games for ESPN that go far beyond the realm of most sports commentary. He brims with passion, not just for basketball, But for wild nature, for politics, for music, and for life. I'm talking, of course, about the great Bill Walton. What an absolute blast it was to talk with this guy. To this day, the Blazers have yet to win a second championship, although in the 90s they came very, very close on a couple of occasions with some great, fast-breaking teams led by another Hall of Famer, the great Clyde Drexler. Even so, the fact that 1977 has stood alone for nearly a half-century makes Bill Walton all the more an enduring folk hero here in Portland, having long since made peace with the team after injuries and mistrust caused a rift between player and team at the close of the 1970s. As famously chronicled in Pulitzer Prize-winning writer David Halberstam's book The Breaks of the Game, Walton's cascading injuries eventually led to a breakup between the Blazers and their star. Today, though, it's kind of an ongoing love fest. When I interviewed Walton for this talk over Zoom, he was wearing a t-shirt replica of his red 1977 Trailblazers jersey. I gotta be honest with you, I've had the good fortune to interview numerous celebrities over the years, movie directors and actors, senators and governors, other famous athletes, but talking with Bill Walton was having an audience with perhaps my greatest childhood hero, or at least number two after the Fonz from Happy Days. Growing up, My family even hung a Bill Walton Christmas ornament from our tree each December, although somehow, quite appropriately, the figurine's foot had become broken. Like any Blazer fan, sometimes I wonder how many championships Portland would have won if Walton had been able to stay healthy. At least two titles seems to be a pretty good bet. Yet if that were the case, Bill Walton wouldn't exactly be Bill Walton. While we all cherish that championship trophy from 77, Walton's fleeting time in good health and his frequent spot on injury lists is indelible to his persona, and the fact that he has overcome so much injury and pain, both during and after his playing days, is perhaps as much a testament to the man as the trophies he's won. There was a time about 10 years ago when Bill Walton's back was so painful that he could only lie on the floor 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, that he's such an irrepressible optimist now so overflowing with good cheer, despite all the pain he's experienced, is perhaps his greatest quality of all. Now though, let's listen to a brief audio clip of Bill Walton and his prime in the 1977 championship series. In part one of our two episode look at the Coliseum, we played you a Bill Shanley game call from game six, the game when Portland won the title. But now let's listen to a lesser known moment that did prove pivotal. It's from game three of the finals, On May 29, 1977. It was the first game in the series to have been played at Memorial Coliseum after the first two were held in Philadelphia, both won by the 76ers. No team at that point had ever come back from a 2-0 deficit, so this third game at the Coliseum was especially crucial. Portland led by just two points at halftime, and in the fourth quarter, It was a merely four-point game when two Bill Walton alley-oops got the Blazers going, en route to what became a 129-107 win, and the first of four straight Portland victories en route to the championship. In both plays, Philly defender Daryl Dawkins, a man who became famous for tearing a backboard to pieces, was between Walton and the basket. Dawkins was perfectly positioned to make a defensive play, but in both cases, Walton extended high into the air, touching the ball with just the slightest tip of his finger over Dawkins to get the ball in the basket. Here it is.
1: think of that way. 91.87, 9.30 to go. Walton on the lob.
2: Oh, he got it in! Bill Walton got it in! Quartzick and Gross. What a sequence for the Blazers! this first one, what a play by Bill Walton on a great super pass by Bobby Gross, he leads it up, Walton's in the air, falling away controls it with his fingers in the basket now let's watch the next one off of this great steal, a lob pass to Walton super pass again by Torzik. it's a different angle on the first one tips it in, and the Blazers have come back
0: That was broadcaster Brent Musburger and commentator Rick Barry calling Game Three of the 1977 NBA Finals on TV for CBS. My second interview guest is perhaps best known for her 2019 solo show at the Portland Art Museum, featuring exclusively works about and depicting Memorial Coliseum. I'm talking about Avantika Bawa, a multidisciplinary artist curator, and art professor who came to America about 25 years ago from her native India. After receiving a Master of Fine Arts degree from the prestigious School of the Art Institute of Chicago, she's seen her work exhibited at galleries and museums in Portland and all over the world. I actually had the honor of writing the catalog essay for Avantika's Colosseum exhibit at the Portland Art Museum, and I began by noting how the arena's minimalism lent itself to artistic depiction, writing, quote, Gabawa's drawings show the grid-like geometry of the Colosseum's facade as part of not just a modernist architectural tradition, but also a common language with minimalist visual artistic traditions from Agnes Martin to Donald Judd and the Colosseum's curvy concrete seating bowl as an organic curve to juxtapose against the rectilinear glass box. These works bear witness to the Colosseum's beauty, Yet it's not just representationalism. Her imaginary views of the building can actually feel more real than photos. Many years ago, the Coliseum was captured by the most acclaimed American architectural photographer of the 20th century, Julius Schulman. Bawa's drawings stand beside these priceless images as an equal, yet apart from them by offering a more personal take that renders the Colosseum's simplicity even more simply, end quote. Since her series on the Colosseum. Bawa has continued to explore architectural ideas in her artwork, including a series depicting New York's and the world's tallest residential building, 432 Park Avenue, as well as a series of works portraying the almost windowless Georgia Archives building in Atlanta. Best of all, though, may be a series of installations she's done in different parts of the world, starting in India with a pink scaffolding in the Ron, and continuing at sites here in Oregon and elsewhere. No matter where she's working, and no matter what structure she's bouncing ideas off of, I think ultimately she's looking at light. So let's get started, and thanks again for listening. I'm here. Okay, great. How, how you feeling today uh, how's the weather in san diego
2: i'm ready to go here blazers oregon memorial coliseum what could be better here on the banks of the mighty willamette river the largest tributary tributary excuse me to the columbia river roll on columbia roll on forever as we only hope the blazers can do themselves in their beautiful new home the motor center but it was a while ago that we used to play all the games. Everything in life used to emanate from the Memorial Coliseum, the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, in honor naming rights for the veterans, the proud Americans who fought for the United States of America in World War II and Korea. How are hey. you doing, Brian? I'm doing great,
0: and thank you so much for joining us on the show. And uh, uh, I think you know what a pleasure it is to be talking with you as a, a lifelong Blazer fan. And uh, um, I'm a Blazer fan. Yeah, yeah. And well, you know, I have uh, up a
2: Blazer fan because the Blazers didn't exist when I was growing up. Yes. And I, I found out about the Blazers when Sidney Wicks first went to the Blazers. He was a UCLA star legend, the greatest college forward that I ever saw play basketball. Sidney was the number two overall pick of the Blazers and he teamed with Jeff Petrie in the early days. Yeah. And then with my friendship with Jerry West, who was starring for the Lakers at the time. And we used to have breakfast together at Westwood Drugstore with Hollis Johnson. And he would uh, feed the players, feed the people, Hollis uh-huh. would, And uh, Jerry and I would have breakfast three or four times a week on his way to Laker practice. And I was taking a break from school or getting ready to go to practice that afternoon for John Wooden in UCLA. And Jerry would always just rave about the potential in Oregon. And Jerry had come to Los Angeles from West Virginia. And what an eye-opening experience that was for him, as it was for me when I first went up to Oregon. Absolutely incredible. And I can remember the very first basketball game, Brian, that I ever watched was the 1965 NCAA championship game between UCLA and Michigan. Now we grew up in a household without a television set. My parents uh, have zero interest in sports. My dad has passed away 17 years ago, but my mom is still alive, 94 years young, going strong as can be and still living by herself in the family home just 10 minutes by car and 45 minutes by bicycle from where we live now in the north edge of Balboa park in my hometown of san diego but the way that the bruins played that day i was just 12 years old and it was a situation where I knew about basketball. I had never seen it played on television by anyone else. I had listened to it a lot on the radio. I had read about it constantly in the newspapers. And, but I was not aware so much that the game was in Oregon. I, I was aware that UCLA was playing, and I had a chance and privilege to watch them play. Yeah, But and- the way that the Bruins played that day was emblematic of the Oregon spirit. And now, over the course of my life, I've been able to study a lot about it. The other two teams in the final four that. Year 1965 wasn't called the Final Four that in those days, yeah, it was just called the NCAA tournament. And but with Princeton and Wichita State and Bill Bradley having just a, a, an incredible tournament, Bill Bradley yeah. won the most outstanding player award in the Memorial Coliseum, the Veterans uh-huh. Memorial Coliseum, as a member of the third place team. Now he scored an NCAA Final Four record of 58 points in that third place game, but in the championship game, UCLA. Underdogs, serious underdogs to the Michigan Wolverines. Big, powerful, ranked number one, undefeated coming in, player of the year, Cassie Russell. And you know Big Ten basketball, man. They got big, tough, rugged bruisers with shoulders that just emanate right from their edge of the shoulders all the way up to their ears, (laughs) signifying basically no neck whatsoever. That was the uh, Big Ten champion. Michigan Wolverines. On the other hand, UCLA was uh, their roster was all of you know a bunch of California guys with the exception of two real key players. But the Gale Goodrich performance in that 1965 championship game, I am sitting there just stunned and memorized, mesmerized and in awe, in awe of the way that these little skinny scrawny UCLA Bruins, Keith Erickson, Goodrich. Uh, Kenny Washington could just take it right to these big, powerful Michigan Wolverines. Yeah. Now, that- I, I had an older brother, and now that, that older brother has played a huge role and influence in my life. I say had because he passed away about 18 months ago, mm. but I knew what it was like to have to go up against these big, tough, rugged guys who had no necks. Yeah. And, and he. He taught me how to play a game of speed, quickness, anticipation, and skill. And that's the way the Bruins played. And so as a little 12-year-old Billy lying on the floor of a guy's house, Mickey. Mickey lived down the street, about three or four houses down the street. We lived on a hill. Lying on the floor, watching this UCLA team just absolutely inspired me. And I just told myself that that's what I want to do in my life. I, I want to go to UCLA and I want to play like that and I got to go to UCLA and I got to play in the championships and I did get to beat Dale Goodrich's championship game record and then I did get to come and play in the Veterans Memorial Coliseum. Yeah, yeah. The glass palace on the banks of the Willamette River. Here yeah, we go.
0: I love it. I love it. And so, uh, uh, you would have encountered the Coliseum as a uh, in person for the first time after you were drafted I imagine
2: then. Correct. But when I first came up there, everything in those days was right, uh, at the cent- at, at the offices, the blazer offices at the Lloyd center. And so when I came up there, uh- I was not involved in the negotiations of, the, of my contract. Yeah. Uh, I knew I was going to be picked number one. I knew I was going to be picked by the Blazers. I had told the NBA uh, because the ABA in those days, they were after me. And they yeah. were just, they were promising me the moon. A couple of but different I teams. I wanted in the NBA and I wanted to go to Oregon. So I told the NBA before the, before the draft, I said, look, I'm, I really want to go to Oregon. This is a you know a tremendous opportunity for me. If Philadelphia, who was also competing in the in the coin flip in those days, there was no lottery. There was a coin flip between the t- the two uh, top or the two worst teams from the respective conferences. Mm-hmm. Then uh, if Philadelphia won the coin flip, that I was going to go to the ABA. And so they had the coin flip. Portland won, and I became a Blazer. And uh-huh. so when I flew up there, the the only thing I was interested in in my contract, which ultimately was the largest professional team sport contract in the history of all sports uh, up till that point. Uh And so here was a a situation where I just told the guys who were representing me, and I I said, the only thing I care about is that I don't want the coach, I don't want the team telling me when I have to cut my hair, when I have to shave, and what clothes I'm going to wear. Yeah, yeah. and so they said, fine, that's cool, Bill. And so, you know, I, I did that and uh, I, I didn't even look at the numbers. I just signed the contract, saw that it was written in there that I could, uh, yeah. I was in charge of uh, my personal grooming, such as it was. <laughs> and, and then uh, I flew up there to Oregon to, uh, for the press conference and the signing. But that all took place at Lloyd Center. And I really did not get to the Portland Memorial Coliseum uh, until well into the fall when the when the season started there
0: yeah yeah and you would have had experience with some of the great basketball arenas in America like Pauley Pavilion and later you obviously played in the Boston Garden and you had played in arenas all over the country as a as a college player and so
2: um, and Matt Court don't forget Matt Court yeah. you'll call CM, and see him and heck Edmondson up in Seattle UW and then I played down at McHale Center in its opening years. And then we played in the Checker Dome. We played in the Chicago Stadium. This was all in college. Yeah. And we, we played up at BYU, which was a tremendous arena, still in use today. And uh, but I love history and I love tradition and and, and to know all that's gone down and, and and to witness to witness just how beautiful that building is, the Glass Palace and yeah you know, and you come in and out and the rivers right there and it's and the architecture the style the intimacy and the, the the ability to go in there and be a part of the game as yeah. a fan yeah, and and the Blazer fans. I mean, I, I knew about the Oregon fans from our uh, remarkable battles with Oregon and Oregon State. Yes, at Gil Coliseum. Yeah, what, well, there.
0: some of the uh, there was there was one big upset of UCLA. I want to say was it at Matt Court or, or at Gill Coliseum while you were playing? It was
2: both. It was the lost weekend. Oh my gosh! It was the day the Earth spun backwards. Yeah, yeah. You were probably yeah. like a loss. What is that? <laughs> you know, you great, we had one of the great teams ever and. Of all the teams I played on at UCLA our senior season our senior squad uh, that had the most talent
0: yeah yeah ironically given that you now, didn't win it that, and that
2: was the year that was the year that we lost <laughs> four of our last 17 games and the crowds there at Matt Court and Jill Coliseum and they were just ecstatic and we were crushed we were devastated but our team had fallen apart I had suffered some major injuries there was team chemistry problems there was coaching there was problems between players and the coach And so it just wasn't happening at all for us. We still had a chance. We still had a chance to win the championship, but there's a lot of... uh ifs and coulds and shoulds in this world, and and, and that's uh, right up there at the top of but my still, list. But still, you
0: know, like I was uh, watching Gonzaga's run before they lost in the championship game this year, right. and there were people sort of intimating that if they were to go on and win the title, maybe you could make a case for them as as the greatest team of all time, and I thought, try going 88-0 and <laughs> like UCLA did during your I've sophomore learned, year. I've learned,
2: I'm 68 years old now, Brian, I've, I've learned, and a, a young person like you, you're whole life has been shaped by ESPN and so and, and at ESPN everything is ranked rated and compared and everything is either the best or the worst and that's not the life I live I don't live in that qualitative binary decision making world where it's either or I mean, there are lots of great teams there are lots of great players and this Gonzaga program and this particular team this year oh my gosh I mean, just spectacular to watch. They ran up against a better team, Baylor, in the championship. And Baylor, that was the best example of team basketball. Baylor and Scott Drew and all the players that they had this year, the whole program that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, They were determined. They had a, a plan. They played with purpose. And it almost seemed to me when I was watching the game and working it on the radio for Westwood One Radio, as I do every year at the Final Four, it, it, it just seemed to me that the Baylor Bears were just sitting there all year long and just looking at each other in the locker room and saying to themselves. They didn't say it publicly. They just were saying it to themselves. We want Gonzaga. Yeah, it feels we so often, and, and, and they took it to Gonzaga the same way that uh, you know great teams don't always win the championship. Yep. And,
0: yep yep well you know you were saying that you don't pay too much attention to um some of those stats and and binary ways of measurements and uh, uh measuring the game and and i think it really makes sense for you because i i feel like you're one of the x players or one of the players that i associate with a kind of joy of pure playing uh and uh um it seems like um that's something that just kind of emanated from you i maybe paradoxically given you've had, or, or someone who has had so many injuries, but it seems like there's a palpable joy that came out of you when you were playing.
2: I don't know what paradoxically and, and palpable means, <laughs> but I lived to play basketball, and I loved playing basketball, and I played to win, and I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I played for the greatest coaches, I played for the greatest programs, I played with the greatest teammates, I played in the greatest cities, and, I, and all the cities that I went and played in, I wanted to go there. And one of the things that is disturbing to me about the NBA today is that, you know, the players, some of the players don't seem to appreciate where they're playing and the role they have in the community. And what Bill Shonley did as the Blazers' sixth employee. Now, remember, when I joined the Blazers in 1974, the entire front office, This does not count Bill Schoenling. He was not front office. He was the messenger. He was the voice. He was the face. But there were eight people running the whole franchise. (laughs) Today, it's a lot different. And the the NBA today is, is the dream come true for all of us who were there earlier on. But there were players, generations before us. I got there in '74. In, in you do the math. What's 48, 46, 47, 48 when the NBA first started? Up to '74. Yeah. I to say that's 26 uh, years. 16, 17, 18 years of guys who just gave everything they had, uh, you know, to make it work. And then, it, and then I was the beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. And now today's players are just doing fantastic. And the size and the skill and the talent and the. the physical fitness level and yeah. the shooting ability and the dribbling and the passing it was just so much fun to watch and i i really enjoy watching this current Blazer team because yeah. they're emblematic of the oregon spirit and i think that one of the things that uh, that i uh tried to be better at in my life is, is understanding that oregon spirit yeah because I was so young when I first got out. Know, I was t- 21 years old when I first showed up there. and I was unprepared I was unsuspecting, I was undiscerning and the people of Oregon have always been nicer to me than I deserved. And I, I, I was just I was just flying out there and it was uh, uh, it, it was uh, truly spectacular. I, I wish I could have played more, I wish I could have played longer, I wish I could have played better. And I wish I could have done better uh, by everybody up there because it's uh, such a spectacular place. And, and and the beauty, when you grow up in Southern California, and, and, you know, look, there's natural beauty everywhere. Yeah. Depending on the weather. And so when I first got to Oregon, I, I was just blown away by how... Remarkably beautiful and gorgeous and rivers and volcanoes and mountains and gorges and canyons yeah. and hot springs and no people. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah the, the, the population of the entire state uh, c- could have fit on the UCLA campus. <laughs> when I was going to school there, or, or at least on the 405 freeway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, the city has just grown so much. And, and, and I had such a great time. Yeah. Yeah all the you know i've always lived a life and this was encouraged by my parents and my coaches and teachers uh, a life of curiosity a life of exploration a life of experimentation to where you know get out there do something be involved and to, and, and to live right there in the heart of the city in northwest portland yeah. I had a few false starts but i didn't know what i was doing yeah and so uh but i uh, i tried to learn i always tried my best to uh, I I never sat there and said, well, I think I'll make the wrong decision. yeah but Some of the things didn't turn out so well, but uh, a lot of them did. And and those are the memories that I focus in on because uh, it it was a place where I played my best basketball. I had the most remarkable teammates. I, I wanted, Brian, from the very beginning, you know, my life, basketball was the easiest part of my life. It was a safe place. It was a sanctuary for me. It was a safe haven. I'm a lifelong stutterer. I could not say a word. Basketball, piece of cake. Academic, straight A student, the whole way. My challenges have been orthopedic health with now 39 operations at last count. I'm starting to forget though. Wow. And then then, uh, my lifelong speech impediments. And nothing has changed my life more than learning how to speak. Yeah. And and so uh, when I was in Portland, I could not speak, I could not express myself. And then when, when I was unable to play because of the beginnings of the endless string of stress fractures that just uh, devastated every aspect of my life, I, I was not able to to handle that properly.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I really think, I mean, this is the ultimate compliment, but I think for me as a, as a fan or someone who's read some of your books, that the, the quintessential Bill Walton narrative is overcoming adversity either on the court or off the court with your health uh, as a player and all your back issues in more recent years, the, the overcoming stuttering to becoming uh, a, an ESPN broadcaster. And so, um, you know, it seems like there are all these cases of you coming full circle in a way it, with, with your relationship with the Blazers as well.
2: I have come full circle in many, many ways, and hopefully I'm a better person today than I was yesterday on the day when I first signed up in May of 1974 to sign my first contract and uh, was just unaware, unaware of what was going on around me. And that, and that is my fault. And, but the the growth, the evolution, the development, and all the things that go down in your life that, that change you because as you stand at the fork in the road, and realize that you know you have to make a choice right here those choices they all have ramifications and when you say that that my life is defined by overcoming adversity i would hope that i would have a greater level of positive contribution than just recovering from failure but to try to do the right thing at all times Uh that that is the 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 level of honor and the standard of excellence and perfection that I try to live every day. Now, I never quite get there, but my career has been marked by meteoric climbs to the top, followed almost immediately by catastrophic health crises that have taken me right down to the bottom. And that happened a number of times in Oregon. You know, it was, I, I couldn't play enough. I started off. Okay. We did not have a, a, a good, uh, chemistry on the team. We did not have a good mix on the roster. Uh, Lenny Rilkins, Tom Sherry, the great coaches at the beginning there, they were not allowed to do the things they wanted to do. They thought needed to be done to make us a, a much more successful team. The fans were, were slow to come around to the way we were playing, uh, but then uh, changes were made and they hired Jack Ramsey. They made all kinds of trades. The roster was completely revamped in, in his dream and his vision all the same things that Lenny Wilkins and Tom McSherry were pushing and promoting and then bang it worked it worked, yeah. and it worked a, uh, by a multiple of an incalculable margin
0: and that and, and you knew it too like because uh, I was just reading in Jack Scott's book like uh, um, there was a uh, the end of the regular season there was a game where you had clinched the blazers had clinched a playoff spot and you said in that press after the game you said I think we're going to win the championship.
2: Yeah, well, you, you, you always think that. And so with with uh, Maurice Lucas, who's the greatest blazer of all. Now, Bill is the most important blazer because he spread the message. And I really hope that the blazers put a big statue of Bill Shonley right out in front yeah. uh, of the motor center because he, he deserves it. Without Bill Shonley, there is no blazers. And and he is just such a spiritual force of nature but but Maurice Lucas was the greatest teammate that I ever had and he loved Oregon man and Oregon loved him uh-huh. wherever Maurice went <clears throat> uh, they loved him uh, as long as he was on their team, if he was on the other team and they hated him, <laughs> and and that <laughs> uh
0: that game where you clinched the playoff spot, like uh he apparently had the flu that day, and like you called him in the book, it describes you calling him on the phone, and he's so delirious, like he almost he at first he doesn't even recognize your voice because he's got such bad flu, and you, he still played that night.
2: Oh well, Maurice was the toughest dude ever. I mean, he was big, bad, rough guy, and everybody was terrified of him. Yeah. And, you know, Maurice had two he had two mantras that he used uh, in his relationships with other people and uh, please bear in mind that the strength of the team is the strength of the individual and that's what great coaches do is they make people better at who they are and what they do and then they have to convince them to subjugate all individual goals and agendas for the greater goal of what the team is trying to do. Now, I never had any problem with any of that because that was the culture that I grew up in. I'm a team guy. I spent my whole life dreaming about being part of something special, and I had that a number of times in elementary school with my first coach, Rocky High School, with Gordon Nash at Helix, UCLA, John Wooden. Every coach I had as a child, every teacher I had in history, English, science, chemistry, math, you name it, they were all John Wooden disciples. Because John Wooden was omnipresent throughout Southern California in a much more regional world at the time. And then here was Maurice Lucas, who was such a towering pillar of strength. And it went, whenever there was a, a, a crisis, whenever there was a catastrophe, whenever there was a decision that had to be made, a responsibility that had to be assumed, Maurice Lucas would lean into the group, look around, and he would say... I'll take care of this. And he did. And when things still did not go his way, Maurice would ramp it up a little bit more. And then he would call everybody together and look, look at everybody and say, hey, things aren't going right. If we don't turn it around right now and things don't go my way, our way immediately, He'd look at us, and say, I'm gonna kill you guys on the spot. And nobody ever doubted that he did. Uh-huh. Greatest teammate I ever had. And Larry Bird was the greatest player I ever played with. Kareem was the greatest opponent I ever had. But Maurice Lucas, and uh, and you talk to anybody who ever played with Maurice Lucas, <laughs> and they have exactly the same relationship, interpretation, and sense of who this remarkable human being yeah one of the he uh was more than, he was more than a human being he 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 was like the Columbia River. He was like the, the the molten lava that's underneath the the surface of the earth, just looking for a big volcanic eruption to come right out. And, uh-huh. you know, his very first game at the Memorial Coliseum. I mean he you know he, he, he threw down a reverse slam dunk in Kareem's face at the buzzer <laughs> to win an exhibition game. And the, the rest is history. I mean, <laughs> we never lost another big game while either one of us were both held
0: yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, I. It reminds me. I wanted to also ask you. You know, it. You, you guys are having a lot of fun, and and yet you're also under a lot of pressure. And I wonder if there was ever time to like uh to to go out and see a concert and blow off some steam, and go camping. Like, uh, I wonder if you yeah. ever saw a concert at the Coliseum. Uh, like first of all, uh,
2: let's talk about pressure. I love pressure, and if you don't love pressure, this is not the place to be. And. Yeah, the, the, don't pick basketball as a life, as a career. Don't pick really anything that I know. I mean, pressure is everywhere. And, uh, but you're also a human being that has to have a broad based, fully rounded life, an, an experiential life, an experimental life, a curious life. And so I went everywhere and did everything, and it was fantastic. And it was, all, it always served as. A, a level of inspiration, of knowledge, of motivation, of healing, of community, of being part of something. And so, I mean, the number of concerts that we went to at all over Portland, so many great venues, none better than the Memorial Coliseum. And, uh, but, uh, but, but also just uh, the spirit of the Coliseum in that, you know, the same people worked, worked the concerts as worked the games. And George working the parking lot. I mean, George was the coolest dude ever. Some of the games I'd ride my bike to, and I'd yep. I'd, leave it, I'd leave it there in one of the storage rooms just inside the door. But uh, jo- George was just on top of everything, and, uh-huh. and, and he was always there, always with a smile. And he gave his life to make other people happy because when you're coming to the game. I mean, the determination and the focus and the concentration. You don't want to be stuck in traffic. You don't want to be worried about anything other than getting to that game, getting in the locker room, getting dressed and getting out on that court. And let's play ball. Don't slow me down. Don't ease me in. She brings me coffee. She brings me tea. She brings me every darn thing but the jailhouse keys. And that was George in the parking lot, man. So we knew that everything was taken care of just the same way it happened in the neighborhood with the way that people at the restaurants, our neighbors, at the parks, the movie theaters, the grocery stores, they were just so tuned in to Uh everything we were doing. And the Blazer Maniacs, I mean, at the end of the day. We won the championship because we had Maurice Lucas, we had Jack Ramsey, we had the Blazer Maniacs, and nobody else did. Uh-huh. Now, I'm watching today's games and, and, and the fans, you know, now that they're back in the arenas and getting more and more each and every game, mm-hmm. That it, it, it is so fantastic because I love playing in front of the fans.
0: Yeah, I yeah. Know. I mean, uh, uh, I've thought about that so much in the last year as as being unable to go to sporting events myself, The the... The, the special power that a crowd of people has when they all um, are feeling the same thoughts and and the same emotions. And they emotions. Believe.
2: And, the, and, and the Blazer fans would bring the signs. No crowd I've ever played in front of brought signs like that. Now, the Grateful Dead crowd is a different crowd, and they bring all kinds of stuff on their own yeah. to help enjoy the, the show, the party, the scene, whatever it is, the game. But the, the blazer Maniacs, man, they would come with the signs.
0: Uh-huh, and uh-huh.
2: We remember those signs. And they were so creative and so inspirational. And well, they were part of the team. And it, it was fantastic. And, and, and they made us better than we could possibly ever be on our own. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that atmosphere inside the Memorial Coliseum. Oh my gosh and, and just with everybody so close and, and and it can go from full volume where it was basically just white noise that would make your skin just tingle and feel like you were superhuman and nothing would be able to ever stop you and you would never be tired again to all of a sudden it would be eerily quiet and you could you could hear you could hear a fly on the other end of the building, it would get so quiet. And and the control that the fans had, the control, the impact that they had on the other team, on us, on the refs, on everybody, on the writers, it it, it was a thing to behold. And uh, I will forever be able to say, I was there. Yes, because when I go around, I mean, I, I'm a public person. I, I mean, I'm out there. The pandemic has slowed that down a lot, but it, I'm back out there again now. I'm fully vaccinated and going full speed ahead one more time, but you know, I, I'm out there. And I, invariably I will run into to people who just come up to me, Brian, with this dazed look in their eyes and they'll just say, I was there. I was there. <laughs> and, a lot of the times, it was they were in the Memorial Coliseum, uh-huh. or, or they were in the the Paramount Theater over on Broadway at the closed circuit broadcast. That's right. fun! And, and 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 all the restaurants that would support us. And, and you know, you talked about the camping and the rivers and. And all the natural beauty that we tried to explore all the time, and, mm-hmm. and and there were just so many other people in Oregon who were willing to help us and to accommodate us and show us where to go, whether it was a hot springs, whether it was a special trail, whether it was a a, a good spot to uh, to stop by the side of the river and get a good cold fresh drink uh, of 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 the water coming right off one of the glaciers on one of the volcanoes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, uh, just spectacular to go up to government camp and and, and to see the architecture up there and, yeah. and how much, how much that life in Oregon is emblematic of that pioneering spirit, that pioneering spirit of people leaving, often leaving a life that was uh, not much at yeah. all. yeah when, when the great migration started uh, on the Oregon Trail, the most of those people were not leave, leaving a life of luxury and, uh, and, and plenty back there in, in the Midwest or wherever they were. Uh, but they were convinced that they could make a fresh start uh, in, a, in a promised land, mm-hmm. a promised land of water and resources and freshness, uh, proximity to the ocean and mountains and just everything and the Willamette Valley and, and right there. Right there At the mouth of the Willamette Valley is the Glass Palace, the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, just standing there like a beacon, like a beacon that's flashing. You know, this is where it's happening. Game Mm -hmm. starts at eight o'clock tonight. Let's go. Be in town early. That's great. That's
0: great. You know, it makes me wonder maybe uh, we'll want to. I know you need to go in a second, but. Uh, Make
2: um, your time, Brian. You're doing fantastic.
0: There's one special feature that the building has that it always kind of breaks my heart a little bit that how few people have experienced, and I wonder how aware you are of this um, that um, there's a curtain that is kind of permanent at the top of the seating bowl that blocks the view. But the way the building is designed is you're supposed to have a view out from your seats. Uh, to the outside, and right, but they have to
2: put that curtain up because you have to have a a, a shooting background. And I, and I talked about shooting basketballs. I'm I'm anti-gun, and so. Uh, but the you know the we, we would have some practices in there when the natural light was all the light we needed. Oh, cool. And, so, and, and that was super fun because all of us, we grew up playing basketball outdoors. We grew up in, in, in various gyms around the world, not every game. you know, The Memorial Coliseum, the glass palace, that's the pinnacle, that's being on top. That's where the championships are decided. But the work that goes in to become the champion, that starts when you're very young, when you're outdoors and you're in gym, that you know with with poor lighting poor floor poor ventilation Uh and it's all in preparation to get to the top of the mountain that promised land Uh that is so so spectacular when it does happen yeah i
0: had been meaning to ask you about that too i like i call it the championship moment and uh um i've uh i was only five years old when the blazers won the championship but i've got it taste of it now and then. I was in Yankee Stadium once when they won the World Series and I know it's different from a fan than from a player, but I was just curious to get your take on on that 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 feeling of elation that is the
2: championship moment. It's what you live for. It's what you play for. And that sense of community, the sense of collective effort and purpose, the sense of participation in something that is bigger than your own individual life and the way that our fans would be so ready. I think that uh, one of the things that, that really stands out was that uh, as, the, as the team got better and better and better and closer and ever closer to winning the championship, the number of fans who would come to the airport to see us off and to welcome us home now there was no security in those days. You could just park and walk in, uh, ride your bike there, uh-huh. uh, ride a skateboard there if you could find some pavement, and and then you uh, and there were with twelve thousand six hundred sixty-six fans every night for eighteen years, including the the standing room only slots at the midway walk around bowl where the Grateful Dead used to have to stand because yeah. I couldn't get him any tickets. <laughs> and how disappointing and frustrating because they would put me, I mean, I could go wherever I wanted. Uh, but uh, when I would ask for tickets, uh, you know, there was uh, George Rickles, he, w- he would just say, Bill, I'm sad and sorry to tell you this, but there are no tickets. Even for Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir and Bill Kreutzman and Mickey Hart and Phil Lesh and uh, Brent Midland and uh, and uh, Keith Gondschau and Donna and, he, and George would say, Bill, I'm sorry there are no tickets, but that sense of being in the arena and then just everyone, the whole state, whether it was at the airport, because the arena is a shifting complex and, uh, uh, and, and it could be at Wallace Park. It could be on Gleason or Everett as I'm riding my bike to and from the Coliseum for the actual game itself or or to go out to the Jewish community center where we practice so much or out at the uh, University of Portland uh, on the point out there in North Portland where we practiced a lot there too and all the different places we played and all the different events that we did and, and Bill Shanley always shepherding the way with the big beacon of light that he would hold on up and say Come with me, follow me to the promised land, and it was just so fantastic. And then uh, all culminating with Philadelphia showing up, and yes, we had taken care of uh, Chicago and, and uh, Denver, and all you know. And these teams had Hall of Famers all up yeah. and down. the Lakers, and then the Lakers with Kareem, but then Philadelphia, and as as Baylor, as they sat in their locker room all year long and said, we want Gonzaga to themselves, we would sit in our locker room. And we would say, bring it on. <laughs> we are the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah, and yeah. You're not. Yeah. Was, I mean, it was so, it was so, you know, Jack Ramsey was just the master. He was just brilliant at uh, knowing the pulse of the team and being able to get you up and the, the focus and the enthusiasm and the energy, the concentration, all the things, the analysis and the, the, the brain power and the, the roster that he assembled. It just absolutely critical uh-huh. to our team. Success. Uh, you know, so many of the guys are, have passed away. Jack Ramsey, Maurice Lucas, Herm Gilliam, Robin Jones. Uh, but so many of them are still alive, and, I, and we're still in close touch with all of them. Uh, Lionel, Johnny, Dave, Larry, Corky, Lloyd, Wally. I mean, every you know, it, it, one of the great indicators of, of a coach, of a leader, of a teacher, you know, of a parent, is, is how how the children do down the road. And Jack Ramsey, he did his job.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Jack because you you had already been coached by the greatest college coach of all time uh, and you spent time later on with people like Red Auerbach and Casey Jones. And what was the particular talent that Jack brought?
2: Jack had everything. And Jack had a, a different understanding of, of of the role of the coach than the other coaches I played for. Because the other coaches I played for all came from a playing background. And Jack played, but not at a high level. I mean, the highest level he got was the Eastern League, and that was just uh, for you know a, a short period of time. But that doesn't mean that there's only one path to the top of the mountain. I mean, there's uh, lots of circuitous routes that you can take. And and Jack, you know, who coached Wilt, who was the general manager for Wilt in Philadelphia. Jack uh, at St. Joe's. Jack up in Buffalo. Later on, after Portland, he was in Indianapolis and with ESPN forever. And you know, yeah. wherever Jack went, he made everything better. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, John Wooden was the first great player in the history of basketball. Lenny Wilkins, please read his book, Unguarded. Absolutely brilliant. And Tom Bacheri, tough, fierce guy, uh, competitor, and just a fighter for uh, truth, justice, and, and, and goodness. And then uh, the Clipper coaches that I played for, superb Gene Shue, Paul Silas, Don Chaney in particular. And then Casey Jones. And Red Auerbach. Now Red wasn't a player either. Right. Uh, he, he played a little bit early on, but he he wasn't a, a player of, uh, of significant historical import. And so here he was, you know, Red and Jack, uh, uh, and there was a bitter rivalry between Red and Jack. And uh, but 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 Jack Ramsey, man, that guy, he he taught me things that I did not know existed, and you know. Uh, when you come f- from the perspective of being a great player, uh, you know, you see the game one way and, and, and you see the preparation and the development. And, and, and then when you come from, uh, from a technical side and, and an education side and a teaching side, the way that Red Auerbach and Jack Ramsey came, that uh, it, it, it's different. It's different in, in, in a lot of different ways. And, and I'm just glad I got to experience both sides. And I'm really glad uh, that I I was able to learn from so many different master teachers. That's really the the ultimate challenge for a young dreamer is to search for, find, and learn from the master teachers and understand, accept, embrace, acknowledge that those master teachers come in all different sizes, shapes, directions, uh, and and everything. And, And Jack's Jack's masterful use of the blackboard. You know, the coaches. You know, I played for. We never used a blackboard. We never. Used, we never watched film. Uh, you know, we, we watched games not together. We watched games at home on our own. Uh-huh. But there were so few games on TV, and most of the games on TV were our games. And so, uh, but you know, Kareem's games were on TV too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, James' games were on TV too. And so we uh, we would watch them, and the Boston Celtics were always on TV too. Mm-hmm. And so to you know to play against the Boston Celtics to play for the Boston Celtics, and, and just how you know how special that's been in my life. And six of my coaches are in the Hall of Fame, and uh, more would be if my body had held up. But if my body had held up, I, I wouldn't have changed teams.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one other thing I remember about Jack Ramsey, I don't know if this is actually true or not. I, I laugh at myself for even bringing this up, but I, do I remember he had quite – he that guy could sweat quite a lot. Like uh, I remember my dad telling me this urban legend that Jack Ramsey even tried like wearing a diaper under his arms – under his shirt, which I know is a ridiculous stuff, but I just remember that he thinking, I, revering in him as oh, such he, a genius, but a sweater. I
2: don't, I don't know Brian any of these uh, of these things that you're talking about with Jack Ramsey. I do know that I'm a sweater, and I do know that Wilt was the most prodigious sweater of all time, and number two was Moses Malone. I'm number three. Ken Kesey from Eugene and Springfield is number four. Author of my favorite and, book. And and, and and Patrick Ewing is number five. <laughs> and all the rest are are, are well down the list. <laughs> uh, but, but Jack Ramsey, he put everything he had. As anybody who's truly great, they put everything they have into the task at hand. Mm-hmm. And, Jack, you know, Jack, he gave up his life so that other people's dreams could come true. He worked so hard at it. And the, and the toll that takes on your family, uh, on his marriage to Gene, and uh, on his children, you know, who were all very close family friends and just a wonderful family. But, you know, when, when you're the coach, you know, when you're the coach, it's like you're the leader and, and you're never happy. You can't be happy because you're always worried about what's next.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know?
2: Being a, being a player is the easiest part of all of this uh, uh, of the whole circle of life uh, the, being the player because you're responsible for yourself and because you in that position of responsibility and leadership you can do so much your, your impact is unlimited you know my favorite player ever Bill Russell on and off the court. I learned from him early on you can make a positive contribution on every play, mm-hmm. every play. And, it, and in basketball, it never stops. And, it, it, you know, it, it's how hard you want to work. It's, it, it's how you see the whole uh, conflict. It's how you see the, the competition. It's, it, you know, it, it's how you prepare, how you practice. Uh, what are you capable of doing? And, you know, I, I just wish that my body had been able to carry the load of the dreams that I put on it. Mm -hmm. Because in my life, the only thing I wanted was more. More of everything. More of the blazers. More of the Clackamas River, more of the Sandy River, more riding my bike down to the beach from down to from Northwest Portland, mm-hmm. going through Vernonia where Larry Steele's got his, his basketball camp out there for the children and finding these back roads throughout the Willamette Valley or up and down the coast and getting on the big Nestucca River or the little Nestucca. Yeah, River. love it. I just the, saw the Nestucca a couple weeks ago. Or the Imnaha River when you're out in the circumnavigation of the Wallawa Mountains. Yeah. The, the John Day River, the land that time forgot. Yes, some of the and fossil just, beds. I, I I just you know, I just wish you know, I spent half my life in the half my adult life in the hospital. And you know, and that's that's not w- what I was hoping for. <laughs> that was not my plan. But it I, seems like it I gives just you want more. I just want more of everything, including more of the Memorial Coliseum. Yeah. And I mean, I want to, and I want that place to be utilized. I want that place to be maximized because it's a fantastic entertainment venue. Yeah. And. And, and to see the refurbishment that they've done, to see the national uh, landmark and recognition that it's received, and to see the, the upgrades that have been uh, done so far, but that's so far. But as any of us knows, who, who's got a, a, an older building, an older dwelling, an older house, an older whatever, it takes work and Mm -hmm. it takes constant upkeep. And uh, I just, uh, I admire and I credit and I recognize the efforts of the people of Oregon to try to, uh, to keep the dream alive because when people believe about the dream and, and when people are committed to the dream, anything is possible. And that's the Oregon spirit. And you, and, and you dream about the people who came to Oregon and the incredible, an arduous journey that they came on mm-hmm. and not knowing what, what it was going to be like at the other end. Yeah. They were going to go for it. I mean, the grateful dead, they wrote a song and <laughs> they wrote a lot of songs. Sure. Don't know what I'm going for, but I'm going to go for it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's no time to lose. Let's get going out here. Who's going to be the same of the circumstance. that's going to take us over the top, the tiger in the trance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I heard a great, uh, grateful dead story about you the other day there's a concert promoter here uh who is still active who was around in the he was booking the paramount theater in the 70s right. and he talked about a 1978 show that was not a grateful dead show but it was jerry garcia and bob weir at the paramount and uh yeah. they did two shows that night and the second one didn't get out until about five o'clock in the morning and this guy yeah. told me he was dri- uh the the promoter of the concert was driving him home at about five o'clock in the morning and uh and they're driving down 12th avenue and and they see a tall guy on his bicycle popping wheelies riding down the street, and it was you. That
2: was
0: uh, you were, you had It was 5 o'clock in the morning, and you were riding your bicycle down 12th Avenue popping wheelies.
2: That was such a fun night. Oh, my gosh. And I love riding my bike. I love riding my bike to events, to the Memorial Coliseum, the Glass Palace, and just cruise right through, get on the rhythm, and make, make all the lights, cross the Broadway Bridge, and you're right there. Or then going over from northwest Portland on 23rd and Kearney, where we lived, on 20, 24th and Quimby, on 32nd Street, up on the hill above the school, and the Wallace Park, and right on the edge of Forest Park. And mm-hmm. Just, you know, how great it was and to be able to just ride my bike all the time, and then listen to the music play, and, yep. then, and then it's your turn. yeah. It's your turn to make the music, and you know we'd go out there, and they, and those fans, boy, those fans, they were ready. Uh-huh. And they just, they just made you feel perfect. They made you feel invincible, and they, and you knew, you knew you would never be tired. Even though you played to get tired, even though you left it all out there, when you needed something more, the fans would be there for you to let that help Yeah, team. And
0: What's you needed about? it. Uh you know that 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 clinching game in game 6 uh it it seemed at first like there were a few minutes to go and you guys were maybe going to get away with like a, a six or seven point victory or something and and it it just kept hanging around. They just kept hanging around like 109-107 and there was and there's a, then at the very end there's this jump ball and they have another shot at it and it's like it was so close. You know, it so easily could have gone back to Philly for Game 7. Just razor thin.
2: I disagree. We had it. We had Maurice Lucas. We had Bob Gross. We had Lionel Hollins. We had Johnny Davis. We had Jack Ramsey. Dave Torgic was just back. He played very well for us. Blazers. Well, I think you would know better than me. Blazers at home on a Sunday. Brent Musburger, CBS. Let's go! Yeah, we're it's, not messing around here. We're taking care of business today, and then, and then the party began. I love it. I love it, was it.
0: Fantastic! And yeah, you got to pour a can yeah. of beer over the mayor's head.
2: Yeah, that was the next day at the parade. And, uh,
0: yeah, tell me about yeah. that night first. Uh, the night uh, well, of,
2: somehow, some way, I ended up at Lionel's house, and Lionel had a beautiful penthouse in one of the towers in downtown Portland. And I ended up there, and uh, you know I, I'm an early to bed guy, and so when it gets dark, when it gets late, uh, uh, unless I've slept all day, which I have a hard time sleeping anyway, much less in the daytime. But you know, it, 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 if the Grateful Dead are going to be playing, or Jerry's going to be a late night concert, that's one thing. You know, you get all fired up and you stay, you can stay awake a little bit longer. But we had had our peak performance in the daytime. It was a, you know, a, I think it was a 12:30 start. That that was you know, generally the start time for the day games. And, and you know, and then we're going and going and going and going, and I'm at Lionel's house, and Lionel tells me that Maurice was there too. I can't remember. I, I can't speak for Maurice, and he can't speak for himself any longer. But Lionel, he's co- currently coaching the Lakers and doing a great job with them, man. That's a really solid championship team there. And then Lionel sort of called the shots. He said, hey, man, I just got a call. There's going to be a parade. We better get going. And so I, I, I think I hitchhiked back over to uh, Northwest Twenty Third and, and uh, Kearney, where I was living at the time, and I uh, uh, got my bike and and uh, rode down, rode down either Gleason or Everett. I, I I can't really, I know which one goes down, which one goes up, but I can't tell the difference. And and then crossed the Broadway Bridge and and, on the, and that was the end. Yeah, and so, you lost your bike. No, I, no, I don't. I, I take that back. I don't think we crossed the bridge. I think we started at a big staging area down at the foot of Broadway on the west side of the bridge. Now, somebody who has a, a better and clearer memory will know for sure, uh-huh. but but I just kind of think, I, I kind of think that, it, you know, down down in that industrial section, which I, which I don't even know, it, 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 it's called the Pearl District now? Yeah, or something like yeah, that. I mean, I, I, exactly. I, I wish that I knew then what I know now. And I wish I was the person then that I am now. But I guess that's called life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, I was thinking about music and how uh, uh, there are some bands who put out 20 different great records over the course of their career, and there are some bands... Who only have a fleeting amount of time like a hendrix or something um but you know those three hendrix studio albums are as good as it gets
2: um i love jimmy hendrix i got to see Jimi hendrix ah and, uh, when i was in high school and he played a he played a big festival in los angeles that uh, a whole bunch of us just went to and it was just one of those really wild scenes that where the music just never stopped uh-huh. and it just kept going and going and going and the, from one band to the next and uh
0: and well, he played the coliseum the days, in 68
2: days that used to be uh, everybody played the coliseum it was fantastic i mean that's that was the place to play and uh, you know and everybody loves coming to oregon because the people are so nice and it's so beautiful there's water everywhere and uh, the, the food is terrific and the, the, the scenery, the, the natural inspiration of life. And, you know, and if you're not having a good day because of what's happening on the telephone or what's happening on the television, just go outside and take a walk and yeah. look at the magnificent trees and, 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 the, and the drip, drip, drip of the water coming down or go down and uh, watch the river flow.
0: I'm gonna be thinking of you when I get on my bike this afternoon. I love to ride my bike uh, through what's called the Springwater Corridor. I don't think it would have been here when you were around, but basically the uh, down by Oaks Park, this they they created a wildlife refuge right right along the Willamette from an old ra- a kind of rail trail. Like they've created a trail. Uh, where there used to be a railroad right along the Willamette. And so you can ride your bike. Uh, I wish I could show you, actually. Like, you can ride your bike. You're, you're along the Willamette, but you're going through a wildlife refuge. Uh, and then you come out at Oaks Park. But, uh, you know, I've seen bald I've eagles. I've, I've been, seen I've, heron. Yeah.
2: No, I, 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 I try to get to Oregon as much as I can. And, and for those of you who are not familiar with some of the places that we're talking about, please read Marcy Houle's book called A Generous Nature, A Generous Nature by Marcy Houle. It will make you so proud to be an Oregonian as I am. Yeah. And with that, I say thank you, Brian. I bid you farewell. I bid you good night. And thank you for this most wonderful opportunity for me to drift of dream.
0: I'll tell you, I've interviewed a lot of famous movie directors. I've interviewed a fair amount of politicians, and uh, you know, my sporting favorites are always still my favorite interviews. And uh, just uh, you know, thank you for doing what you do, uh, both now and uh, then, and uh, and thank you for all this generous time uh, joining us on In Search of Portland.
2: Thank Brian. Thank you, Oregon. Thank you, Portland, and thank you, the Memorial Coliseum for the veterans. Yeah, the Glass Palace standing as a pillar a beacon of hope of people looking i love right
0: it better. i love it that. thank you sir uh, a thousand thank yous In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, Visit capstone partners. Avantica, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland.
1: Happy to be here, Brian.
0: So uh, when did you first become aware of uh, Memorial Coliseum and, and uh, could you talk about the process of developing an interest in the building that ultimately led you to, to um, using it as a creative inspiration? When did you first encounter the Coliseum?
1: I, I'm pretty sure I encountered it when I first visited Portland in 2006 but I hadn't really paid full attention to it till much later when I moved to Portland in 2010 and even a little bit after that in around 2014, when I started going very um, regularly to games at the Moda Center, Blazer Games. Um, As a building, it's one that kind of stood out, but it it would always question me a little bit, but I, I guess this is on me. I wasn't curious enough at the first few years of my time in Portland to investigate it further. But it just it stood out, but it also felt a little bit overpowered by the motor center. And it's only when I started going to these games where I was confronted by it, I realized it was a gorgeous structure that was being overshadowed, overlooked by the growth around it. And of course, the monstrous, well, the scale of the of the motor. And it was it was it was kind of um, every time I would I would walk to the motor for games and walk back. So it gave me the time to just enter the space, enter and walk around the space and exit it and experience it in a way that I wouldn't if I was going just to see the building itself. So it became like a quiet conversation that started to evolve into a de- uh, a deeper dialogue with the space.
0: That's interesting to me because, uh, and it makes sense because on one hand, we're looking at a building that is very, very simple, this glass box, but maybe because it's simple, maybe some of its beauty is kind of subtle, like the way the light hits it in different spots at different times. So, it, 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 Was that your experience, that it kind of revealed itself over time?
1: I, absolutely. And even now it does. I've been staring at the building and walking around it for, for, for years at the stage, since 2014. But every time I go, something new reveals itself. And that's the marvel of that building, whether it's occupied or vacant. You see it in the daytime. You see it at night, when when it's lit up. When it's dark, it just constantly changes.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like
1: this magnificent, quiet creature with many mysteries that are that are gradually unveiling themselves.
0: I love that, I love that. And so um, what about that next step of actually starting to think about creating artworks, uh, depicting it or inspired by it? Uh, How did that process uh, develop over time?
1: So it's interesting. It was a building I'd been looking at and thinking about starting to sketch. Um, But in 2014, again, I received a prompt from the Regional Arts and Culture Council or a request to make work for their 25th or 30th anniversary, uh, a work that would then be collected in the Portland city archives. And the stipulation was that the work somehow had to be related to something about Portland. And that was a perfect opportunity for me. And I proposed a drawing of the building and, Um, Talked about how it reflects a spirit of the Pacific Northwest and its architectural style, a spirit of communities coming together because of the blazers and just a genuine architectural marvel. Uh, Apparently, the committee wholeheartedly agreed and said, go ahead, make one drawing. And I said, I'm going to actually make five. They said, no, we can only commission you for one. I said, it doesn't matter. I'll make a few. You choose what you want. Ultimately they picked two and uh, framed them and the works now hang in one of the city buildings. And after I made those few, I, I wasn't c- content. I, I knew this was just the beginning of a long, longer journey. And since then I've been making many, many drawings, panels, uh, prints, and of course a book that I had, I worked on with you off the building.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I, uh, Find it fascinating the idea of an artist taking on the Colosseum because there's a lot of different approaches one could have in how you depict it, and and yet I also found it was interesting when I saw your works, especially in the Portland Art Museum, uh, the way that um, you know one has that in tackling the kind of very linear kind of machine like perfection you know the the grid like um you're you're very good at drawing and so you could you could create quite straight lines but virtually no human can create perfect lines and so I really enjoyed the the in a sense the imperfections of the drawings even though they were so good like um, because it in a way like um seeing the human hand there kind of reminded me of um how the of the pristineness of the building itself it's interesting that relationship and it, it I feel like I'm in saying that I'm I'm asking you something about maybe how we respond to modern architecture in general that that kind of grid-like geometry and the, the the kind of smooth surfaces you know like it isn't like an old building that has all this ornament or something like that it's it's like the clean lines and some of the sharp highly resolved details are are what become interesting, right?
1: Right. And you think it's a perfect space, which it is. Architecturally, it is. But when you go experience it, you see changes because of the terrain and the weathering. And the same idea when translated into drawing or painting. Um, I'm not a machine. I'm making drawings. I'm not making digital drawings either. So it took me a little while to embrace the imperfection or the honesty of the hand and also the the impact of memory and I say memory because one of the drawings which I think you have right now it missed an entire block of the Colosseum because I just forgot to include it and after the drawing was over I said why are there only 11 sections when there should be 12 and i obsessed at that time with its perfection was ready to destroy it but my curator uh, Grace Cook Anderson was was vehemently opposed to that and said no let the the imperfection be part of the honest rendition of this work
0: absolutely and,
1: and that's that's what i did and even like the initial works i, I was initially when i first making started making the drawings It was a little more abstract and then I got deeper into it. It started to get hyper realistic and very calculated Um, and it pushed me to rethink my knowledge of mathematics and fractions and decimals and I had to relearn basic math and as an Indian you would think that would be easy but but it wasn't but I'm glad it gave me a chance to uh, resharpen my math brain. So there was this whole series I did where it was very much about getting the proportions right, getting the perspective right. And um, this was also fun for me to do as an artist. I, uh, I teach a lot of linear perspective and follow the rules set forth by Brunelleschi and Alberti. And I use those rules in the drawing classes that I teach, but finding a, a, a space to actually use them in my own work was a fun way to geek out a little bit. So after delving deeper and getting into the more realistic uh, drawings of this work, I soon saw myself kind of uh, uh, moving away from that a little bit and approaching the abstraction and the simplicity of the building again. So when you see the the series of works i did from 2014 or 2013 up to about 2016 there's there's definitely a shift in how how real and how abstract it starts to look and i think both approaches are just as important
0: Absolutely. I I like the differences between it and the real thing. I I like the idea, like you mentioned, the fact that I now have one of your artworks of the Coliseum, which is great. And so I get to look at it every day when I'm making my espresso, which is probably about 15 times a day. Um, You know, I like the idea of um, it being kind of the impression you form of the coliseum when you close your eyes and try and imagine it like especially in the artwork i i have it's it's kind of the outline of the building against this blazing yellow background and uh um it it almost feels like if i made like a flag of memorial coliseum then that could be it you know and and so it the the like when you close your eyes and imagine something, it, it inevitably gets reduced to something. And it may not necessarily be a photographic picture in its accuracy, but um, that that's what makes it interesting in a way.
1: Right. And I think just to go back to an interview you did a few years ago, you could reduce the Colosseum to a circle in a square. Yes, which what it is. And I, I love the simplicity of that. And what's also odd and fun is when you walk around the building or when you see it one can't imagine that it's a square it feels like a long thin long rectangle but in actuality it's a square but unless you're using drone footage or flying above it you don't get to see the squareness of it Uh so again I like how it has so many facets to it and the many layers in which it constantly unveils itself the experience Absolutely. of walking around the building outside and also walking inside the arena are very different.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, by the way, I, I'd like to back up a little bit and and ask you a question about your Blazer fandom. Uh, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's so great that you've embraced the team. Like, not a—it's not always a given that when someone moves as an adult to a new city, that they adopt that team kind of a, as a, a love of their own. And so, um, could you walk us through
1: becoming a Blazer fan? Oh yeah, and yes. Yeah, so this is great. I—I've—I've I've always been interested in in athleticism and sports, but never—I haven't followed a team for a very long time. I've been in the United States for 25 years, and you know, been fascinated by the Bulls when I lived in Chicago, but the irony is I never went to a Bulls game, which is tragic because the Bulls won a few championships right when I was there. And I I don't even remember it. And people are appalled when I tell them that. (laughs) And then I lived in Atlanta, another great city for sports, but it's only when I came to Portland, the city where you think no artist is going to really be interested in sports. I, I got fascinated. I went to a game in April with a a friend of mine who's from the Netherlands and here at the end of the game, uh, two international people walking around the, the Coliseum just gawking at, at the building and just loving the game of basketball. So there was something really nice about, doesn't make sense for this foreigner to come to the US and love the sport so much or someone who's an artist to gets so into sports, but there was also something about the cadence of the game I love that I walked that I remember the moment when I walked into the motor center and I didn't feel like I was in Portland anymore. It was, the crowd was really mixed and, and the, the, just the, the cheer of the fans. It was, it was a very surreal experience. And then once I walked into the arena, I think what made me fall in love with basketball right away was just the sound of the game. The, the sound of the dribble, the echoes, the people, the, 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 acoustical experience was beautiful. And of course, then just understanding how the game functioned and the fact that it was over within three hours, unlike so many other sports that go on forever. And, you know, also the history. I went to the Basketball Hall of Fame a few years later, heard, learned more about James Smith and how he used an apple basket initially. So all those little histories and nuances, which I'm sure every other sport has. But with the game of basketball, I was really fascinated by how they, you know, made the fabric of the, the game so much more rich, interesting, and very diverse.
0: Absolutely. I love all that. And um, basketball really has proliferated as an international sport um, a lot more than, say, American football or baseball even, um, arguably. And um, uh, I love that idea that you mentioned of there being a kind of musicality to the sound of the dribble and the squeaks of the sneakers and the sound of a dunk. Uh,
1: right, um, right.
0: And, uh, um, you know, it makes me think of uh, growing up playing the game and and going to some of my first... Blazer games, uh, uh during the eighties, uh, I was a little bit too young to really appreciate the championship run when it was going on. Cause I was only about five years old in 1977, but I had a very visceral sense of the Clyde Drexler era uh-huh. in the 1980s and, and seeing, um, that those great teams, uh, and, and, uh, um, there was such a speed, um, to the kind of fast-breaking offense that the Blazers had then, and um, um, uh, and even before those days, the the I I always kind of marveled um, going to arenas, and also you know this is true when you go to sometimes to the theater or other types of. Um, spectator venues but i I do think what you said is is really part of the magic of an experience at a building like the Coliseum or others in that year you are getting a kind of melting pot of people from from all over the community and from different walks of life and different income levels and so um, especially in Portland where um, let's face it, it, it in some measurable demographic ways it's not a very diverse city at least compared right. to you know New York or San Francisco. Uh, Or a lot of other U.S. cities. And so um, there are times like when you go to the Moda Center or Memorial Coliseum or to the Portland State University campus or to other places where you do get um, more of a sense of of all kinds of different communities being there together. Pioneer Courthouse Square maybe sometimes or Waterfront Park. But I think it says something about the power that those places have in our society
1: right right and also i i live in portland but I work in vancouver and again at the motor center seeing people from southwest washington coming together with with portlanders people from the suburbs it's like i i don't think there's anything else that really and it's so apolitical for the most part and i again basketball just as a as a sport stays away from a lot of those things which makes it in my opinion an even more noble sport and it's truly uh the quintessential North American sport that is now being embraced by everyone. oh well, speaking about the blazers, as, as an artist, I'm obviously very interested in logo design and graphic design. I think we have the best logo. I agree. I We do. I, I wish we hadn't changed it because I almost preferred it before it slid. You know, um, you have the five streaks in opposing directions. For those listening, just Google. Well, you should know what the blazer looks, yeah, looks the, like. Yeah, the pinwheel. The pinwheel, yeah. But before it was even angled, I liked that even more. But I I still think what we have today is one of the best logos.
0: I've always believed that... Uh, sports teams that have wordless logos that have some kind of symbolic logos are are the best. Like I remember there was a Super Bowl one time where it was the New Orleans Saints against the Indianapolis Colts. And so it was the Saints with the fleur de lis on their helmet against the Colts with a horseshoe on their helmet. And I remember enjoying the fact that it was too, you know, it, like that as compared to like the, I remember the New York giants used to just have literally the word giants on their helmet. And it was so boring, you know um, uh, but you know, I agree. Logo design in sports is really interesting. And, and um, the blazer logo, the pinwheel is kind of funny because it doesn't seem to be evocative of anything to do with the word trailblazer in a way. But it, it if you look at the pinwheel closely, it actually does seem to be a kind of delta or a junction. Like you could almost visualize it as, as a place where, where different people come together. And so I kind of like that idea. I, I love the trailblazer name as well. Like that's not just some fierce animal, you know, that it speaks to our identity
1: and also it's the the trailblazers have always been in portland we've not a we're not a team that moves from some other place and yes not only do i like the fact that our logo doesn't have any text on it it is also a more abstract non-objective logo there's no reference to a horse shoe part talking about the spurs or a bridge talking about the team in california or these other things it's very non-objective and there's a sense of movement to it that's, you know, that's, that's, that's lovely. You wanna be energized when you're on the court, not see some symbol of re- resting and relaxation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, well, speaking of which, uh, I, I love the perspective that you have on something like that on the logo. I would love to hear about um, coming to Portland, given that you're from India and yet you've also lived in uh, Chicago, where you studied, and Atlanta, where you taught, and so um, uh, whether whether it's when you first arrived in Portland or now that you've had some some years here, like. Um, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about living here, um, and what it's been like for you?
1: Portland's an amazing city, and you know, I know in the past year or two, it's been a little. This we've had some trouble times, but I'm I'm not going anywhere yet. I don't think so. I'm hoping I can stay here for a longer, for as long as possible, maybe. But it's it's a friendly microcosm of people from everywhere and people who think very all differently, and there's not there's not a lot of judgment that's passed at least till till recently and for anyone who loves the natural environment, it's a beautiful place to be. You can be at the ocean, you can be in the mountains, you can be in the gorge within within in less than an hour and that's really that's really nice um, I don't know people like Portland because it's it's Portland for all its quirks and nuances and its ability to embrace people who move here from anywhere else which includes people like you and me you know hum- and yet yet the native portlanders um the, i guess maybe one doesn't see a, as many of them around but, but there's a there's a nice mingling of native portlanders oregonians with all the people who have migrated here over the years mm-hmm. um and coming from atlanta it was I guess I I missed some of the pulse that Atlanta had. There was a nice tension in the city and the frantic pace of it. And sometimes I feel Portland is a little bit sleepy, but it's, you know, it's very easy to leave Portland and go to another city if you want to feel mad energized. Um, I'm not talking too well about Portland right now. No, I think it's it's just a very nice, pleasant balance.
0: Uh And uh my
1: parents who live in India have seen, have come and visited me Since I've lived in the US in 1996, and they they are visitors, and so they have more of an objective view or a more neutral view, because it's not about having a better job or community. It's very much for them, the city, and they say, hands down, this is the best city you've chosen to live in.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe finally, uh, I'd love to just hear a little bit about uh, what you've been working on recently, uh, following you on social media. I really enjoyed uh, seeing your scaffolding series and, and an image of, of that work is even uh, the cover of a book now. And uh, whether it's that work or, or other things that you have coming up or going on, I'd love to just hear what you've got going on and what's got you, you know, excited these days.
1: So uh, besides the Coliseum, I obviously love architecture, either making drawings of buildings that I am fascinated by or making work in architectural sites or work that kind of responds to the language of construction. So besides the Coliseum, a few other b- buildings that I recently worked with are the uh, Ice Cube building, which is was in Atlanta. It was destroyed in 2017. I did a whole project based on that. It was just this big block of marble and it was the archive for the state of Georgia, sadly demolished. I did a series of works on that. And at the same time, and this is an ongoing series, I'm making drawings of the skinny building in Manhattan for four, three, two Park Avenue. Yes, it's a controversial building. I guess I like controversial buildings the Coliseum was. Uh, the Georgia archives was, which is why it got demolished and now 432 because it's supposedly swaying. It's the tallest residential structure and it just really stands out against the skyline of Manhattan. It has a sincere and odd symmetry that I'm fascinated by and I've been making drawings of that too. But besides these, these affairs with individual buildings that are constantly evolving and they're all kind of going on at the same time, I've been doing uh, installations with scaffolds. I like the ubiquitous nature of a scaffold made out of metal, not the traditional bamboo scaffolds, though I find those beautiful too. My interest is in metal scaffolds that I have created installations with in in India, in in Ashland, Oregon, in Astoria, Oregon, and... uh, uh, not too long ago, in at the run of Kutch, which is this vast salt desert on the in the western side of India, it was it was a installation that I did in December 2019 in a very open landscape, white a very white landscape with a pink scaffold, and because the pandemic hit when it was to come down, it's still sitting out there and gradually kind of falling over. Um, so during the pandemic, since I couldn't do more work with scaffolds, I started printing them with, in metal and in also plastic and made these micro installations around the coast of Oregon. And very recently, I installed a show at the University of Kentucky in, in Le- Lexington. It's a show with made to vet curated by Stuart Horatner. It's called Template uh, Days, and it basically features a series of my mini scaffolds mm-hmm. and And in November, I'm in a group show at the Bellevue Art Museum uh, called, um, it's the Bellevue Art Museum's biannual and it's called Architecture and the Built Environment. And I'll be showing some real life scaffolds and countering them with some mini scaffolds, embracing my inner Austin Powers and mini me by showing the (laughs) big and the micro version of both.
0: Yes, yes. And you know, there's there's, to me, uh... A through line a connecting thread um, when I look at your artworks through the years that um, uh, each 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 one is completely different and yet they all make sense together and I, I wonder maybe just finally if you could talk a little bit about um, the the fascination that you have for some of this, um, you know, obviously, the scaffolding in the Coliseum have a kind of rectilinear grid-like quality, but it's more, I, I sense that your interest is more than just grids. Uh, but, you know, uh, could you talk a little bit about some of those um, broader ideas that that um, pique your interest?
1: Um, again, it comes down to how I, I occupy or converse with architecture and space. So with the Coliseum and 432 and the Georgia archives, I'm literally drawing and responding to those Fascinations with marks on paper, with the installations of the scaffolds, I'm creating, trying to create a new conversation with the site or the land. And another series of work that I haven't talked about is these wall drawings that I do. It's literally just shapes on a wall, paintings on a wall. And that, in a way, is like making a mark on the architecture. So, all of them are, all of these different facets of working reflect my different ways of engaging with architecture. I Besides the scaffold series, just last week I did a a wall installation in Lombard, Illinois, which is a suburb outside of Chicago, and it's for a new museum, the National Indo-American Museum, which is going to open in two weeks. And basically what I did was make these big, super pink dots on a wall outside of the building and in in the interior space as a way of just creating a sense of marking the space and creating a sense of movement from the interior to the exterior, while also alluding to a sense of growth, because it's like dot 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 mm-hmm. and continuity. So I don't know if that answered your question, but yes, it's it's all about flirting with challenging uh, architecture and just you know debating, dialoguing. It's it's all about the built environment and the landscape.
0: I love that. I love that. Um, I feel like by reducing that to some simple geometry and forms that um, it sort of allows me to see not just the Colosseum differently, but but to see, like you say, the landscape itself differently. So um, I really enjoy your work, not only the Colosseum, uh, but, but uh, the other explorations you've made.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: Well, again, uh, in the meantime, though, uh, Avantika, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland.
1: Thank you, thank you, Brian. Go Blazers, go Portland. You bet, cheers. Yes. 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 Take care.
0: And now another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's natural stone catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. All right. Thanks again to the great Bill Walton for joining us on the podcast, and thanks again to my talented friend Avantika Bawa. I'd like to finish by telling you a little bit about a concert I attended at Memorial Coliseum in early September of this year, or more specifically, outside Memorial Coliseum under its large entry canopy because of the pandemic. It was an opera called Sanctuaries, composed by jazz musician Daryl Grant and directed by Alexander Gedeon, with libretto by Agnes Mogliani. Sanctuaries is about gentrification in north and northeast Portland, particularly the string of urban renewal projects in the mid-20th century that decimated the Albina neighborhood, including the Interstate 5 Freeway, Emanuel Hospital, and Memorial Coliseum. Let's listen to a brief audio clip of Sanctuaries. (laughs)
1: Sanctuaries
0: i uh-huh. was a clip from Sanctuaries performed at Memorial Coliseum in September of 2021, featuring vocalist Damian Jeter, Emmanuel Henried, Marilyn Keller, Ithaca Tell, and Jasmine Johnson. I had the honor of interviewing Daryl Grant and Alexander Gedeon a few days before the Sanctuaries premiere. In my conversation with Gedeon, we explored the notion of a shift in our collective thinking about places like Memorial Coliseum. Its heroic modern architecture is still powerful, but that narrative exists alongside the real story of its origins." Gideon said, quote, "...aesthetics can't be divorced from ethics. That's what the last couple of years have meant to me as an artist. Part of activism starts from looking at your own footprint in your work." Talking with musician Daryl Grant a few days later was also a treat, because as a jazz fan, I love albums of grants like the 1994 classic Black Art. Grant did not mince words, when I asked about how we could reconcile the displacement Memorial Coliseum caused with its great architectural beauty and incredible history, he told me, quote, the pattern in so many cities paving over black and brown communities is not something that can be ignored. The first thing we have to do is own that injustice fully, restoratively acknowledge that injustice. Then maybe we can talk about what role this structure is going to play in the city or the community moving forward, end quote. As much as I love Memorial Coliseum, or actually because I love Memorial Coliseum, I think Daryl Grant is right. The restoration of Memorial Coliseum and the broader Rose Quarter site needs to fully tell the tale of this place, that while this is indeed a site with joyful memories, where the Trailblazers won the championship, where the Beatles and so many other musical icons have performed, it's also a place where people's homes were taken away. And you know what? Memorial Coliseum and the people who attend future games and concerts there will be better for it. The thing is, even tragic stories, when given the light of day they deserve, are in their way beautiful. After all, the Coliseum is far from the only great structure that has displaced people. Looking solely at other performance venues, for example, in New York City you can trace similar histories of Black community displacement in the construction of both Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center. Here in Portland, Our tallest downtown tower, the Wells Fargo Center, sits on the site of the city's first and only segregated school for black students, the Portland Colored School. The Morrison Bridge off ramp sits on the site of what was once Portland's first black owned business, a clothing shop owned by Abner Hunt Francis. Yet no marking exists to tell these tales. Of course, I'm not saying that these patterns absolve the Coliseum specifically, but rather that the Coliseum can serve the community at once displaced in part, as Darrell Grant says, by owning and acknowledging injustice, but also by being a resource for the community going forward. Luckily, that's what Veterans Memorial Coliseum was designed for. In the sunken gardens at the front of the arena are granite walls displaying the names of local soldiers killed in World War II and the Korean War. The idea was that this one-of-a-kind arena, with light pouring in on all four sides, was all about togetherness and transparency which, as it happens, is exactly what we need. Be it the 1960s or the 2020s, we all need to see the light. In Search of Portland is brought to you by X-Ray FM and by our sponsors, Mutual Materials and Capstone Partners. Thank you to our editor and producer for this second season, Jonathan Covington-Brown. Thank you as well to musician Chad Clark and his band Beauty Pill for providing all the music for the show. Thanks to Maxwell Griffin for designing our podcast logo. And thank you to Nikolai Krueger for creating original artworks to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. That artwork can be found on our website, along with every episode of In Search of Portland, at xraypod.com. This concludes our second season, but don't worry. We'll be back in a few months with another season of deep dives into the Rose City's architecture and its layers of history. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Bye for now.